Lord, help us today as we come to your word and we come, Lord, to this historical account of your working uh, through your people in the land of Egypt. And Lord, may we uh, this morning uh, come to this text with hearts that are desiring to learn, hungry to be taught and shaped by you. So Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us in Jesus' name? And Lord, allow me to be your mouthpiece, that you and your truth and your word would come through boldly. And Lord, that your people would respond by bowing their hearts in worship to you, seeing you as the great God that you are. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, it was a number of years ago in 1980 that one of the biggest upsets took place in Olympic history. The underdog U.S. national hockey team, made up of college players, defeated the four-time Soviet Union hockey team um, that won the gold medal four times in a row. And they won four to three. It was the semifinal of the uh, Olympic Winter Games on the 22nd of February, 1980 in Lake Placid, New York. Two days later, um, they would defeat Finland 4-2 to win Olympic gold. Now their gold medal, and in particular, their victory over the Soviets was quickly dubbed by the American media, Miracle on Ice. In fact, there's a, move that you, a movie you can see that actually walks you through that whole story. But friends, I don't want to put a damper on all you hockey fans out there, or sports fans in general. And I don't want to diminish the incredible achievement of the U.S. hockey team winning in that context and in such, uh, against such a formidable opponent. But friends, it was not a miracle. It was amazing, yes. It was incredible, yes. It was stunning, yes. It was unbelievable, yes. But it was not a miracle. Here is a, a word, miracle, that means one thing, but has taken on new meaning in a kind of a new context and in a colloquial way that actually means something different than what it was intended to mean in the first place. A miracle is what happens when God acts supernaturally. It is when God intervenes in this present world against the laws of his own creation. In other words, God speaking through a burning bush is a miracle. God parting the sea to allow the Israelites to go through, that's a miracle. God providing manna from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness, that's a miracle. The people healed by looking at the brazen servant, serpent, that's a miracle. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego untouched by the fiery furnace, that's a miracle. Daniel delivered from the lion's den. That's a miracle. Jonah preserved in the belly of a fish for three days. That's a miracle. God causes both the sun and the moon to stand still for a whole day. That's a miracle. The widow of Zarephath's flour and oil 
increasing and remaining increased until the Lord sends rain upon the earth. That's a miracle. Jesus turns the water into wine. He heals people of their diseases. He makes the blind to see. He causes the lame to walk. Those are miracles. He raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead. He walks on the water. Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus rises from the dead. Those are all miracles. But being the underdog and winning a game is not a miracle. Shooting a basket at the buzzer in the NBA Finals to win the championship is not a miracle. Hitting a golf ball out of a bunker and into a hole with your last shot at the Masters and winning is not a miracle. Running so hard through the airport that you make your connecting flight just as they're closing the gate is not a miracle. John MacArthur has given a helpful definition of a miracle. A miracle is an extraordinary event wrought by God through human agency, an event that cannot be explained by natural forces. Miracles are always designed to authenticate the human instrument God has chosen to declare a specific revelation to those who witness the miracle. Now in today's text, friends, we find God performing signs, wonders, and even a miracle. And he's doing that through two men, Moses and Aaron. They are given roles and responsibilities through which God will work his will and ultimately bring glory to himself by making himself known to Egypt. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, chapter 7 and verse 5. And as these events unfold, we see that Moses and Aaron are, are somewhat of a, a, a dynamic duo in the service of the Lord. Now, they're not like the fictitious partners that we typically think of dynamic duos to be. I mean, I'm thinking, I made a short list here, you probably know them. Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, I mean, they're a dynamic duo, right? Uh, Bert and Ernie, I mean, you, they're always together. SpongeBob and Patrick, mm -hmm. Laurel and Hardy, that'll take you back a little while, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, for my son, Sean and Gus, and then of course the dynamic duo, which is always the first one that comes out of your mouth, is Batman and Robin. No. Moses and Aaron are like, not like that. They're not fictitious people. They are real historical people that God used in the past to accomplish his purposes and to bring glory to himself. And what this text is revealing to us is that God chooses ordinary people who will listen to his word and do his will. Now, in, in the record of, of, of history here, we find the extraordinary things happening, incredible miracles taking place, signs and wonders, they're called here. But God is choosing ordinary people who will listen to his word and do his will to accomplish those things. And friends, so often when we come to the characters in the pages of God's word, 
especially the ones through whom God works mighty wonders, we, we seem to see them as super servants or super Christians with Christian superpowers or something along those lines. And so we think to ourselves, how can I relate to that? How can I stand up and face a giant like Goliath? How can I destroy a, a thousand enemies of God with the jawbone of a donkey? How can I heal the blind and raise the dead and feed multitudes of people? How can I stand before Pharaoh today and perform signs, wonders, miracles? I can't do that. I'm not like them. But friends, God is not looking to replicate the events we find in Scripture. But he's still working his will. And he chooses his children to be his representatives, to listen to his instructions, to obey his commands, and to step back and let him be God. So friends, when you and I pray rightly, we pray with the power of God at work for his glory. When you and I serve him and use our gifts rightly, we do so as vessels and channels of his grace and for his will to be accomplished. And when we open our mouths to proclaim his truth, we do so knowing that the power is in the word because the Holy Spirit is working through that word. It is not in us. See, our goal is not to become super Christians. Our goal is to pursue maturity in Christ by becoming more and more like him. He is the powerful one. He is the one who holds the world together and is at work in this world accomplishing his will. So we want to jump into our text now, and it falls really into two sections. There's the section that is in chapter 6, um, and that section is from verse 10 to verse 30. And then we have another section, which is chapter 7, verses 1 through verse 13. And at, you know, at first look, you might say, how in the world do they work together? And we're going to see that unpack here um, as we press on. Now, as we come to verses 10 through 30, I want uh, us to see the fact that we are struck with a number of things that need to be understood and need to be explained in order to grasp the significance of what's going on. So this is why I'm asking you to think very, very carefully and to follow along deliberately. We are initially struck with Moses' response in verse 12 to God's command in verse 10 and 11. Here's what God says. He says, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses responds, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then should Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. This all seems strange to us. I mean, there's two questions we might have. Why is Moses still protesting? I mean, what's going on here? Israel didn't listen, so why should Pharaoh listen when God had told him repeatedly that Pharaoh wouldn't listen? So, so why is he bringing this up again? And then what does Moses mean by, I am of uncircumcised lips? Seems like strange terminology. Well, it is, but Moses is basically saying this. I'm not qualified to go and stand before Pharaoh. And we may be surprised that God is not angry with Moses. No, God 
and his response is to charge both Moses and Aaron to go and speak to Pharaoh. And a little later in verse 30, we find Moses again complaining about being of uncircumcised lips and questioning, how will Pharaoh listen to me? And the problem for us, friends, is that we look at that and we're really just confused. What is going on with Moses? Why does he not get it when God is just repeating himself over and over again? Well, friends, part of the problem is that we're not reading the text correctly. You say, Pastor Rob, what are you talking about? Are you like a false teacher and bringing heresy? And No, no, no. We're not reading the text correctly. We're we're reading it at this point as a narrative story. And that is understandable because that is what we normally do with Old Testament narrative. We read it as an unfolding account of the events that are taking place. And we read those accounts in in a linear unfolding of the events fashion, in chronological order. And that is what usually happens. But Moses, the author of this record, has inserted this section to be read differently. And in doing so, he's seeking to make a point. That is why discovering the structure of the text is so important to understanding the text. Now friends, let me encourage you here. What we have from verses 10 through 30 is what's called a chiasm. It is a literary device that is used for emphasis. The best way that I can describe it is that it's, it's like a sandwich where you have the bread and you have you know, two pieces of bread and then inside that you have some lettuce and you have some cheese and then between all that you have the meat. And so that's really what we have in this text. We have bread on both sides, we have lettuce and cheese and we have meat and the meat is ultimately the emphasis. That's where everything is heading, okay? So as we look at this text, verses 10 through 30, we can see that the sandwich is as follows. The two pieces of bread here are God's instructions to Moses and Moses' feeble response. We see that in verses 10 through 12, and we see it in verses 28 through 30. Then we have the lettuce and the cheese, the lettuce on the top. That would be um, God speaking to Moses and Aaron in verse 13. And then the cheese on the bottom, God speaking to Moses about uh, Moses, speaking about Moses and Aaron, I should say. And then the heart of this section is the meat. That's verses 14 through 24. That is the genealogy. Because it doesn't seem strange that, you know, here we are going through this, this account, and all of a sudden, boom, he puts in this genealogy. Where did that come from? So, friends, there's a structure to what is going on in this text. It's moving from the outside to the center, and then from the center back to the outside. So, yes, the text is telling us that Moses was struggling to believe himself being capable of doing what God had called him to do, But that's not the main focus. God's response by reinforcing Aaron's role in the process to be Moses' helper and voice is moving us now in the right direction. But the heart of the chiasm is its emphasis on the genealogy. Now, what is it that we typically do when it comes to genealogies? 
we usually skip them, right? You, you don't want to read through them like I did and botch the names and all that kind of stuff, right? And it's hard to make heads or tails of, of what they're all about and why they're there. You know they're there for a reason, but you can't figure it out, right? That's usually how we think about it. So we need to ask ourselves a few questions about genealogies in particular. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves is this. Who is the audience? And we know that Moses is writing this um, for the second generation uh, of the, those who were part of the wilderness wandering. They've gone through all this wilderness wandering. They're getting ready to enter into the promised land. And so he's writing these accounts to help them understand the history of their people and how God has been at work so that they, as a generation, would not forget that's why he says, I think it's in Numbers, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. He wants them to, to take root of the things that are there in the history of Israel. So he's seeking to give them that history lesson. Secondly, what is the purpose? Well, we, they're not just throwing in these uh, genealogies just to you know, fill space, all right? They're not just there containing unimportant details. They are thoughtful records of what it is that is seeking to be argued here. They serve a purpose, and Moses has placed this genealogy here for a reason. Now, part of what we need to do then is to figure out what the reason is. And so we must ask questions. Well, why here? Why now? What is the purpose or point of this particular genealogy? What is God, what is Moses seeking to point out? So we need to ask the question about the audience, the purpose, and then ultimately the impact. Having, having listed this out in this history record, what kind of impact will this have for that future generation as they read this account? What will it mean to them? Not that, not that they're the ones who are the, the, the measure of interpretation. The point is they will see Moses is trying to say something to us and the light bulbs for them are going to go off because something is listed here in this genealogy. All right. So as they read then, they're going to be identifying with clans, with families, and names. Now remember, this goes back over 400 years. Just think about how old the United States of America is. As of today, our country is 243 years, 9 months, and 22 days old. And I'm sure you understand, there has been a lot of American history during that time. So you can imagine how much history has taken place here among God's people. In particular, not just in, in, in Egypt, but even before that. And so God is seeking to connect the dots between the history of the generations before to the generation now that is waiting to get into the promised land. And so he's trying to connect the dots here for them. So we need to understand that purpose as we jump in. So let's ask the question here, what does this genealogy teach us about Moses and Aaron's family? because ultimately that's where it's headed. First of all, notice it's a chosen family. What we have here is, is the fact that Moses is taking the genealogy back to the original sons 
of Israel, and he mentions three of them, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and he's moving that direction so he can get to Levi. He's trying to make sure that, that the readers here understand that Levi is connected here to these original children of Israel. All right? So they can, they can see, aha, yes, there's Reuben, there's Simeon, there's Levi. Okay, now we're talking about the clans and the descendants of Levi. So it's a chosen family. If you remember, it is God who called Abraham. And he's the one that gave Abraham a promise and then gave it to Isaac and they gave it to Jacob and it's reinforced to Moses. So it's all going back. It's connecting back there. Secondly, we have an ordinary family. And we're not going to do this throughout all of them because it would take too long. But there are some names here of people that are just basic ordinary names. Um, Korah means baldy. Why do you think that's true? It's probably not because he was bald as an adult. It was probably because he was bald at birth. Nepheg means clumsy. Now, I don't know why any parent would name their child clumsy. Um, although you might have the seven dwarves, but I think they got their names like after the fact, not necessarily at birth, right? Then Palu means extraordinary. Uh, here are some parents that had some vision, right? The point is that these were ordinary, regular people. They're not superhuman, but bald and clumsy and extraordinary. So, chosen, ordinary, third. They were an honorable family. Just think about just the Levites in general and the three sons that are mentioned here. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. These Levites ultimately would become the faithful servants in the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. Gershon, we're told in the Chronicles, was in charge of the curtain in the tabernacle. That was his job. His family was to be in charge of curtains. There's a job for you. It's curtains for you, right? We mean that differently, but for him, it's like, this is my job. I'm a curtain maker. I'm a curtain hanger. Kohath was in charge of the furnishings in the tabernacle. Merari was in charge of the physical structure, the beams and how it all went together. Remember, it was a mobile thing. And so someone actually had to put it up, someone had to hang the curtains, and someone had to furnish it. You see how this is going. And what we find here is that these sons of Levi were the faithful workers who made worship in the tabernacle possible. Now today those people would be our ushers, our tech support, those who bring donuts, coffee, and bagels, the setup crew, those who prepare the Lord's table, the sound crew, and we could go on and on. There are, there are these practical workers who, who create the environment so that worship can happen. And friends, that's so important. This was an honorable family. Also, there's a name you probably are aware of, his name is Phineas, and he was a, a zealous priest. And in Numbers chapter 25, we find that he was a priest that was so zealous for God's honor that he was willing to kill those who were dishonoring the Lord. And I won't get into the story, but he basically took a spear and killed two people while they were having uh, relations together, let's just say it that way, because they were doing it in defiance of the Lord. An honorable family. 
then they were also a troubled family. And this is true, I'm sure you look at your family and you look at your extended family, there are those who you might say are the black sheep of the family or are people who are, are people you want to forget about and that kind of stuff. And there's two names that come up here. Of course, the name Korah, which has become synonymous with rebellion. And then you have Nadab and Abihu. Now, these are Aaron's sons who offered strange fire and sought to worship God in their own way, a way not regulated by God and his truth. They, um, they were not honorable in their actions. And the point here is this. This is a normal family <laughs> chosen by God. They were honorable in many ways. There were some that were dishonorable. But this is where these descendants come from. But more than that, this was a prophetic family. And I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And I want you to see a connection that we have here that is important for us to realize. Matthew chapter 1, and I want you to notice the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, think Amram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. If you go back to our text, we have Aminadab, we have Nashon. The point here is this, that these characters that are in this genealogy are all part of the genealogy of Christ. So what God is doing here is he's taking these people back and saying, listen, there's something special happening about your family. Now we know we have the privilege of, of having the record of Christ. They didn't know, but they had the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and continuing to Moses. And we see that fulfilled here in this, this wonderful genealogy. So friends, as we reflect on this text, it's screaming to us, that both Moses and Aaron are true descendants of the children of Israel. And the emphasis is not so much on Moses, but the legitimacy of Aaron. I mean, we've already unpacked, uh, Moses has, has revealed as he's been writing this, that his own origin, where he came from, how he grew up, and how he's connected. But the emphasis here is on the ge this genealogy, it, it is to show where Aaron or who Aaron is, and, and because ultimately he is going to be a key player in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. He will be Moses' prophet, we're told. Moses will hear from God. He will tell Aaron what to say or do, and Aaron will say or do it on behalf of Moses. So God has raised up Aaron, the brother of Moses, to serve Moses as his prophet. So friends, the problem of Moses being unqualified for this task is satisfied by the provision of Aaron, and it's God's provision of Aaron. And friends, it's a reminder of the importance of not thinking about doing ministry 
alone. The pattern in Scripture is to serve God with the help and support of others. Sometimes those others are spouses. Sometimes they're lifelong friends. Sometimes they're apprentices, disciples that you are seeking to raise up to serve the Lord. Sometimes they're, they're co-laborers with you because you're all part of the same church. But God brings people together to do dynamic ministry for His glory. And we see this pattern with with Jesus and the disciples. We see this pattern when Paul and Peter went on missionary journeys. They went with a companion. And this principle then for us is don't seek to do ministry all by yourself. Allow others to join you and to, and to complement the areas where you are weak or feel weak. And friends, that's why being fully connected to a local church and a local body of believers is crucial. God didn't create you to go it alone. He created us, the church, the body, to do ministry together. It's part of the DNA of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Now, together is a strong word. You might have actually in recent days heard this word, right? Together. We're in this together, together, together. But for together to work... There must be an understanding of gifts and talents as well as distinguishing roles. And that is why Paul takes so much time to talk about the nature of the church having differing gifts, but working together in unity for the glory of God. I have a t-shirt um, that I got a number of years at it together for the gospel conference, and it just has together on it. And one of the things that's a little bit different about that word together is that second T is actually a cross. Now, I'm not one that's you know, thrilled about taking the cross and putting it in imagery and that kind of stuff, um, but I, I wear this t-shirt a lot. And it is a reminder that, that the, the, the cross is at the heart of what it means to be together. It's a reminder that it is the gospel that draws us together, but also um, helps us to be the kind of people that we need to, do, or to be together. So it is Christ and the cross who drives our togetherness. So friends, we all take responsibility. We all exercise authority. We all submit to others as we each exercise our God-given roles and responsibilities, whether that's in marriage, whether that's in a family, whether that's in the church or in the community, whether that's in your job, or whether that's as a citizen of this country. We take our responsibilities, we exercise authority, and we submit because we have different roles and we function in different ways. A police officer might have authority when he is trying to manage the cars that are driving down the street, but he still has to go and sit and talk to a doctor who tells him what he has to do. The role determines the responsibility and the authority and the submission that is taking place. So we're all called to be Christ's family because family ultimately matters. And here, Moses is making that connection to that generation, saying, look, this is your family, and this is where these guys come from, and this is where Aaron comes from, and I have raised him up to be alongside Moses for this purpose. This is why he's here. Now, we move from that, from family matters, to what I'm calling 
faithfulness matters. Having established now where Aaron comes from, you now have this dynamic duo of Moses and Aaron now once again being challenged for ministry, being charged to do what they need to do. They come from a, a speckled yet chosen family, but God is going to use them and he's going to work his will through them. And I want you to, to notice three things, big picture here, about these next 13 verses. So the question is this, what are we to make of this dynamic do who come from such a speckled and yet chosen family? First of all, notice that um, they are listening to what God says. And this is what we need to be doing. We need to listen to what God says. So in what appears to be a simple repetition of what he has said before, the Lord lays the foundation by virtue of promises and instructions about what he will do. And so here, Moses and Aaron are reminded of their responsibility. And first of all, God is going to talk about their role. Notice now in verse 1, I will make you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now this is a direct challenge to Pharaoh, as all Pharaohs considered themselves incarnations of the gods. So here stands the king of Egypt, a powerful incarnation of the gods. And in front of him stands Moses, the representative of the God of the slave people. And God is saying to Moses, you will be like a God to Pharaoh. So there's this challenge that is now beginning. He's seeing his role uh, as being like a God. Now, he's not saying that Moses is God, but he's saying he will be like God. Okay, he is acting through Moses. So Moses isn't divine. He's simply God's prophet, a man of flesh and blood. But here's the mystery, friends. God chooses servants to do his will to carry out his divine work. God has chosen us in unique places and in unique ways, under unique circumstances, to do his will and work. Right? God is not typically bypassing working through his children. This is how he works. Ultimately, God will send His Son, the perfect God-man, to do His will in His way. So this is their role. Then we notice their mission again. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So not only was this an act of obedience on the part of Moses and Aaron, it was also a direct challenge from the God of Israel to the God of Egypt, little g. When we speak God's word, that is what we're doing, friends. We represent God so that it is God who speaks through his word. If people have a problem with what we're saying, it shouldn't be because of the word of God. It might be with us. Our delivery might be wrong and our attitudes might be wrong, but it should be because the word of God has spoken. God has spoken, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened. But we must speak God's word in a way that reflects God's intent. That is true for me as a pastor, and it's true for all of us as we seek to 
encourage one another and, and disciple one another, but even as we speak to those that are not believers. But hear this, friends. We must never say more than what God says. That is a distortion that leads to legalism and the establishment of a religious system. We must never say less than what God says. That is a distortion that leads to antinomianism, which basically says, I can do what I want, and worldliness. So we must do the hard work to make sure that what we're saying is actually what God says. It's his intent. It's what he means. So we've got to be careful that, you know, if we have a verse of scripture that someone has pulled from somewhere that we're quoting, we better know what that verse actually means before we're actually sharing it with someone because it might mean something completely different. Sometimes I hear well-intended Christians speaking to non-Christians with anger or a bitter sarcasm about the things of God because they're, they're frustrated that God's word is not respected and that it is rejected. And so they allow their emotions to rise up and to spout out God's truth in a manner that betrays God's intent. You might call it angry evangelism. Be a great title for a book, right? But have you ever been guilty of that? Have you ever found yourself talking to someone who's an unbeliever who is just pushing away what you're saying about God's word, and they might even be mocking you, and so you return in your emotions in kind, and you quote scripture. But you're really not quoting scripture, you're quoting your anger and using scripture as a tool to beat them down. I remember when I was in college, there were teams that did street preaching, in particular outside of bars, and I, we were responsible as, as young preacher boys to go into visit these different um, opportunities to kind of to minister. And so I went with one weekend with uh, this group. And even in my immature Christianity, I was taken aback. Um, it sounded more like they were berating people with the word rather than ministering the word. Some of the preachers would yell hell and judgment. And, and the specific things that maybe they said were from the word of God, but they were not they were not given with compassion. They were given with condemnation. And friends, we must make sure that when we speak God's word, that we're reflecting God's intent in that word. So easy to get off track there. So here we have Moses and Aaron given and being reminded of their responsibility, their role and their mission. But then they're also reminded of God's glory. And here, I want you to notice three things about what we see in this text that, that is uniquely what God is doing. First of all, the response of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart will be hardened, God says. Now, the first time Moses went to speak to Pharaoh with God's word, he encountered a man who would not listen. And not only that, immediately he made matters worse for the Hebrew people. It wasn't a pretty picture at all. So it's understandable that Moses would still be struggling with God's call on his life, but God once again reminds Moses that Pharaoh's hardening of heart is the result of divine influence and determination. Oh, Pharaoh would fully engage in his own heart to reject Moses' words, but God was also at work in 
hardening his heart. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to me or to you. Now these signs, we find that in chapter 3, verse 12, these wonders, chapter 4, verse 21, are given by Moses and Aaron to reinforce the seriousness and the truthfulness of the word of God spoken by God through them. But God is the one who is behind the response of Pharaoh. Secondly, he just continues by saying something about the Exodus, that he would be the one who would bring his people out of Egypt. Notice what it says. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. So Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. I will make the Exodus happen. And notice at the end, here is the agenda. And the agenda here is that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And not only is this prophetic, but it's an outlay and a promise for Moses and Aaron as they set out to serve the Lord. God is giving them a roadmap, so to speak. This is your responsibility. This is what I am doing. You worry about your responsibility. I'll worry about what I'm doing. And friends, this is not new information, but it's a reminder to encourage Moses and Aaron to stay the course, to believe in their God, and to see God's will accomplished. How many times, friends, do we find ourselves wanting to control only that which God has control of? To the neglect of carrying out our own responsibilities. And God is saying, don't worry, don't worry about the, the outcome. <laughs> Worry about your faithfulness to me. All right? Do the things I'm asking you to do. Believe the things I'm asking you to do. Let me handle the rest. Here's what you have to do. Here's what I am going to do. And friends, it's helpful to know that God uses ordinary people like Moses and Aaron. Because that's what all of us are. All of us that are in this room or watching this on the screen, we're simple, ordinary people, just run-of-the-mill people who've been called to serve God where He has placed us. And it may not seem dramatic at all, and it likely isn't. Being a parent, being a husband, being a wife, being a child, being a student, working at your job, being a faithful citizen of this country, these are all mundane, regular things, but God calls us to live our lives in this and to do it for His glory. So our calling isn't necessarily as specific as Moses and Aaron, but we've been given a backdrop of promises, haven't we? About the effect and the fruit of the gospel in our lives. And these are promises, friends, that anchor us to our mission and fuel us to pursue what God has called us to. Let me just remind you of some of these promises that drive us. The fact that God is sovereign is a wonderful promise. It's what Ed was reminding of us earlier today. With all that we're going through, God is seated on his throne. He is not shaken about 
what is happening on this earth. He's fully aware, fully in control. The fact that God will accomplish all he sets out to do, that no one can thwart his purposes or stand in his way. The promise of his presence, that he is always with us, he will never leave us, he will not forsake us, and he is present with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful truth. That's why he's called the the Comforter and the Counselor. The promise of our home in heaven, that we are citizens of another kingdom, and heaven is our ultimate home. It's a wonderful truth that helps us now live because we know what we have in the future. The promise of life lived and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the things that I'm doing, I don't have to do in my own strength, that I have the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me. The promise that my trial, my suffering or sickness is all part of God's purposes to grow me and to bring glory to his name. And in that, that I can find joy and endurance during those times. The promise of forgiveness. I mean, how many times we struggle with the fact, did God actually forgive? And he says over and over and over again, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. The debt has been paid. It's been put on Jesus. The promise that when I fall, I am not condemned by God, but I can get up and I can press on and that he loves to hear the repentant words of one of his children who's fallen flat on his face in sin. The promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The promise that Jesus rose from the dead and will be returning again soon. Friend, there's more, but these these promises fuel us. They anchor us so that we can live the lives that God wants us to live. And one of the passages that lists the benefits of salvation is found in Ephesians 1. And we don't have the time to read it all, but Paul lays out right at the beginning some promises that you and I have. He says, as God's children, we are chosen, we are adopted, we're redeemed, we're given an inheritance, we are sealed. Friends, these are wonderful truths. And these are promises that fuel us then to, 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 to listen to God and to listen carefully and to believe what he has to say. Now, having listened to what God says, now what happens is that they obey what God commands. When God speaks, friends, he expects us to listen and obey. And throughout this unfolding record of Moses' life, and God's call to be his deliverer, we've encountered Moses' insecurity again and again and again. But now look at what this text is screaming at us. Look at verses 6 and verse 10. They, that's Moses and Aaron, did just as the Lord commanded them. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, since they did just as the Lord commanded, then they went to Pharaoh and they spoke the word of God to let God's people go. But just like before, Pharaoh isn't interested in what they have to say or what the feeble God of the Israelites has to say. He says to Moses and Aaron, prove yourselves by working a miracle. And that's the way the world often is. 
Prove yourself that your God can do this. Show us a sign. Do something miraculous. It's probably the wrong thing for Pharaoh to say in this moment. Show me how powerful your God is and why I should listen to him. So just as the Lord commanded, they performed the signs and wonders God told them to perform. And Aaron cast down his staff, and it became a servant. Now, if we remember the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles, they're to authenticate the person or person speaking and the message that is being spoken. So when Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh speaking God's word, and they perform the signs and wonders, they authenticate both uh, themselves as God's messengers and the word from the God of Israel. So they are listening to what God says, and they're obeying what God commands. This is what they've done. They've spoken, and they performed the signs, the wonders, and the miracles that God has asked them to perform. The final thing, though, that we see is this. They're trusting what God does. See, they've done what they need to do. Look at verse 11. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and, they, and the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff and they became serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. See, what's happened here is that Aaron and Moses had listened. They had obeyed. But now they step back. Now it's God who is going to do his thing. And I think that the conflict here between Moses and Aaron with Pharaoh has taken place thus far in the physical realm. But what we see here with the mention of these servants of Pharaoh, these wise men, these sorcerers, they're called magicians of Egypt, men who practice these secret arts, all of this is getting very dark, isn't it? We're moving beyond the physical into darker, more sinister things. Now, to understand what is happening, we need to do some background on Egypt, and in particular, the role of the serpent and the role of the staff that played out in this nation's thinking. First of all, notice the serpent. The serpent, I just want you to, to realize that the serpent was at the heart of what it meant to be a pharaoh of Egypt. You may have seen a picture of King Tut um, all, you know, in, in gold, but in the front on his brow is a snake. It's a serpent there. And it's a female serpent called Uraeus. And this was a, very common for pharaohs. They wore this on their crown because they believed that the serpent had divine power and authority. So it was a symbol of pharaohs majesty and deity. One of the ancient Egyptian texts reveals that when Pharaoh took his throne, he repeat, repeat these words, kind of like our president um, expressing his oath of office. This is what he would say. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule 
a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of the spirits. So for them, the snake represented power and authority. The staff was also part of the royal artifacts that every pharaoh carried. It was even sometimes called the rod of God. It was associated with uh, Osiris, the god of the afterlife. And again, it was another symbol of power and authority. Now, I'm sure that you can see where all of this is heading. It's not by accident that Aaron has a staff that he throws down to the ground and it becomes a snake. And it's no surprise that Pharaoh's servants can conjure up similar tricks to match what Aaron has done. But what Aaron was doing was not some kind of a parlor trick. This is God's hand at work and on display for all to see. What happens next must have been just as much a surprise for Moses and Aaron as it was for Pharaoh. And there can be no mistaking the message that is sent. It says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, plural. Now there is some some consideration as to the fact that this was a larger snake that just was able to swallow up those snakes. It was a statement, though, by God to say, you think you have authority and power. (laughs) You don't. I do. And there is a sense in which it's game on because Pharaoh will not listen to what God is saying here. God is saying, I am the one who has power over nature, over Pharaoh, over Egypt, and Egypt's gods. See, it would be like stomping on the American flag. It would be like going into the Oval Office with a bald eagle and wringing its neck. The imagery would not have been lost upon the Egyptians. It was the God of Israel saying, I am more powerful than you will ever be, so you had better listen to what these men are saying and let my people go. Now this is all prelude to the ten plagues, isn't it? As, a servant, as these events unfold, Pharaoh's magicians will be able to mimic some of Aaron's miracles, but eventually their secret arts are swallowed up by the almighty power of God. And friends, it's worth noting that although Satan is real, his power is not absolute. The Exodus was God's triumph over Satan, but it was not his greatest triumph. That triumph happened when Jesus hung on the cross. All the way back in Genesis, if you remember, chapter 3, this is after the, the garden incident where Satan comes and deceives Adam and Eve. Here is what God says to the serpent, Satan. He announces a curse on him. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her uh, her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So began the prophecy of the coming of the Son of God. And and, and Satan would constantly be biting at the heel of God's deliverers but ultimately he would be crushed. And he's crushed at the cross. 
See, here's how it unfolds. When Jesus is born, almost immediately Satan is at work. He uses the power of government, sending soldiers to kill him. He used the power of demons. He, he tempted Jesus while he was in the wilderness. He used the power of religion by sending priests to accuse him. And then Satan thought, uh-huh, I can get the upper hand. I can put Jesus on the cross. I can have him executed. What a wonderful way to destroy this son of God. But then he didn't realize that he was simply a tool in the hand of God to accomplish his purposes because that execution was the sacrifice once for all that paid for the sin of God's people. It was Christ's triumph over the ruler's and the authorities, Colossians 2.15 says, and to prove that he was not under Satan's power, Jesus was raised from the dead. The result is that we can say boldly, death has been swallowed up in victory. My friends, we must remember that spiritual warfare still rages among God's people. Satan hasn't given up. His power is real, but not absolute. His power over sin was removed through the cross. His power over death was swallowed up by the resurrection. And we find great comfort in that. Now let's step back a little bit and let's just draw some final thoughts as we consider what God has revealed here. This wonderful picture of, of Moses and Aaron's family. This reminder of God's commission to them and their obedience, and then God on display in a magnificent way. The first thing I would like for you to consider is this, and encourage you to do it, and that's this, to embrace your ordinariness. <laughs> embrace it. I don't know why we think that we have to be something incredibly special. Let me remind you of Paul's words in his letter to the Corinthian church. For consider... Your calling, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, for considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might a being might boast in the presence of God. God works through people like Moses and Aaron, simple, ordinary people, like the disciples that Jesus gathered around himself. Like so many people in church history, God chooses the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised as his instruments. He chooses ordinary people just like you, just like me. So embrace it. Secondly, challenge your clumsiness. By clumsiness, I mean to indicate all the ways that you struggle to live for God as you should. These are all the ways that you trip up. These are all the ways that you complain. These are all the ways that you say to God, I can't. These are all the ways that get in the way of doing what God wants you to do. So things like fear, fear of stepping out, the fear of, of looking stupid in front of people, the fear of opening your mouth and speaking, the fear of using that instrument in a public setting. Or maybe it's your anger 
unresolved conflicts, ongoing confrontations, just this constant anger, and it convinces you, I, I can't serve God, not now, not yet. Or maybe it's regret, regret of sin, of choices, of missed opportunity, as people, of people that you've hurt. Or maybe it's laziness, slothfulness. Or maybe it's simply unbelief that God wouldn't want to use a messed up person like me. But friends, one of the greatest miracles of all is that God breathed new life into a messed up sinful soul like you and me. It's an incredible miracle, but he has. So embrace your ordinariness, challenge your clumsiness, and finally develop your faithfulness. Notice the section where God speaks to Moses and Aaron. That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Did you notice that it's all driven by God? Let me just highlight it for you. I will make you God to Pharaoh. You shall speak all that I commanded you. I will multiply sign and wonders. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my people out. I will make myself known. So make no mistake, although Moses and Aaron served the Lord, it was the Lord that was driving everything. Friends, faithfulness is harnessing yourself to what God has said and doing it. It is anchoring yourself to God's Word and by the Holy Spirit, pursuing a life of growth and maturity toward Christ-likeness. Now, ultimately, you will not reach that goal in this life, but it is the pursuit of all of God's children. We're all called to this pursuit. You harness yourself to what God says, and then you seek to do it. And the reality is that we're going to fail, but we don't allow our failure to trip us up and to cause us to stop. We get back up. We get back on the horse. We keep riding. We keep moving toward that goal. And friends, this faithfulness, this growth in Christ-likeness, this pursuit of doing what God has revealed for us to do needs to be cultivated and nurtured and test-proven. Friends, God chooses ordinary people who will listen to His Word and do His will. Will you humble yourself beneath that truth and accept what God has done in choosing you as one of his children. And then live your life by pursuing his word so that you can do it for his glory. And stand back and leave the rest to him. Lord, we ask for help today to contemplate the implications of what we have seen in this text. Certainly, Moses and Aaron are the focal point on a human level. You are at work raising them up. But Lord, far more important than Moses and Aaron is the God behind Moses and Aaron. And the same God that chooses them is the same God that reaches down and chooses us, breathes life into us, and raises us up for His purposes. Lord, may we, may we humble ourselves to seek out our responsibilities before you, Lord, 
wherever that may be, whatever that may be. And Lord, may we harness ourselves to your truth, to, to learn it, to, 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 to take it in, to understand it, and then to faithfully go out, whether it be in our home, in our marriages, in our workplace, in our church, Lord, in our communities, that we would do it, and we would do it for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you do. Oh, but Lord, the privilege of drawing us into your purposes and plans. We are in awe of your kindness. You're in awe of your grace. Now, Lord, shape us and use us for your purposes, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.